you know, when it comes to climate specifically, uh, there's some really interesting ways in which a bond bank can be helpful. I mentioned before, we have a lot of equity inherent in the way that we provide loans because of the state credit enhancement, it's kind of an equalizer. So our most climate impacted community out of this summer's flooding can receive the same rate to rebuild as can you know, a community that was left untouched. Well, welcome back to The Public Money Pod, a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. And we are proudly sponsored by the Government Finance Officers Association, MuniPro, Odyssey Advisors, and Build America Mutual. I'm Justin Marlowe and joined, as always, by my intrepid co-host, Chicken Connoisseur, Californian Marylander, and at least at the moment, forlorn 49ers fan, bona fide fiscal policy expert, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back. Thanks, Justin. Yeah, it was a rough, rough sports weekend here in the household. Um, After the very, I turned off the Super Bowl right after that last touchdown was scored and thought, okay, it's baseball season. (laughs) Baseball season's next. Actually, rugby season is still happening. So that's good too. So I just, you know, move on to the next. We won't think about it. That's how how I deal with loss. (laughs) Well, that's one way. (laughs) Clean break. Yeah. Yes, uh, indeed, a uh, uh, quite a game and quite an ending, anticlimactic really in was. some ways, uh, but yeah. interesting nonetheless. But always next year, they, they have a good team. I'm sure they'll be back in the mix in the not-too-distant future. <clears throat> so we're here today to talk about bond banks, and our guest is uh, Michael Gaughan, who is the executive director of the bond bank in Vermont. <clears throat> bond banks are really interesting kind of feature of municipal finance, one that I, I kind of think doesn't get nearly as much attention as as they ought to just because they do such interesting things and can really add a lot of value in the places that have them. So to be clear, when we talk about a bond bank, we're talking about a an entity, usually a state entity, that is created to borrow money on behalf of smaller issuers. So if you are a small city, small county, small school district, and it might be difficult to go to the municipal bond market on your own uh, because it's a lot of work and you're not in the market very often, you don't maybe have relationships with municipal advisors and investors and others, and it can be expensive and time-consuming to try to go out and sort of start from scratch. Instead, you can go to the state, and the state will bundle together a group of several smaller bond issues, typically from, again, smaller and rural communities, put them out into the market as one big issue, and that one big issue then will attract the attention of usually larger banks, larger, more sophisticated financial institutions, and it gives you access to pricing and investor attention and just a a better overall flow than you're going to get as a smaller issuer going out on your own. So it's a a really interesting way to get at economies of scale, economies of scope, lots of things that we talk about when we talk about efficient provision of public services. Um, and, And yet, uh, bond banks are, are still a bit of a rare occurrence. I want to say there's maybe about a dozen of them in total and lots of reasons why some states have sort of explored the issue and have not gone there. But one of the things that we definitely want to get into with Michael is that in the kind of changing landscape of municipal finance, especially in rural areas, and with particular on the emphasis these days on climate adaptation, uh, green infrastructure, and so forth, there's been kind of a new imperative for bond banks to be able to go out and expand into some of those areas. So we're looking forward to a great conversation with him about all of that. Uh, Liz, you're certainly no stranger to to bond banks and kind of the just the unique challenges that come with being a rural or small community trying to access the capital markets. What comes to mind for you when you think about bond banks? Oh, sure. I mean, uh, I, I live in a, a rural area and like it seems like every rural area across the country, we've got 
water infrastructure that needs to be updated. And currently, um, for several reasons, I know that the the local town officials are are navigating that kind of on their own. Um, Maryland does have a have a conduit issuer of sorts, but it it does strike me that uh, bond banks are a good are a good way and they have been used as part of the this policy solution for tackling a problem that just that is um across an an entire area i mean that in water obviously at water water lines breaking i mean uh climate change issues certainly don't live in one place they they affect everywhere i forget when it was started but Connecticut has a bond, a green bond bank of sorts. It's called the Connecticut Green Bank. And I wrote about it when it launched these things called green liberty bonds. And uh, it's basically like a, a new, a new. I'm air quoting right now, but it's a new type of green bond. And it is basically like what it sounds like. It's a, it's a climate change mitigation focused type of um, conduit issuer for for localities in Connecticut. And to me, that's, it seems like such a the kind of the quintessential example of why you would use a bond bank or a bond bank like entity to target these really big, uh, you know, issues for localities, and particularly for smaller rural localities that don't have the resources to, you know, target this or to coordinate with their you know other with other jurisdictions even within the county it kind of to me seems like a no-brainer and I've always wondered what what am I missing why aren't more states doing stuff like this and so that that to me is sort of where I where I kind of stop with bond banks it's it's a mystery to me yeah yeah, no doubt. And it, yeah, absolutely. And certainly from a kind of policy analytic perspective, uh, students ask me that same question all the time. So why wouldn't we see a lot more of these? There's, It's difficult to solve these collective action problems. Why is it that more places don't use this particular tool? And I think the answer is everywhere you go, there's usually some variation on, you know, the politics just don't work. There's there's a lack of trust or, or a lack of capacity say, in the state government. So local folks are just not willing to partner up or kind of cast their fate uh, in the capital markets to some sort of a state entity. In some places, you have kind of red state, blue state tensions sometimes within the same place. And that can become difficult to come to some sort of shared agreement on what a bond bank ought to look like, what it ought to do. There's been some places that I know that have looked at at bond banks that were versions of bond banks and have really emphasized expanding their their scope and their portfolio into some areas that are a little bit more controversial. Things like marijuana finance, which we've talked about on the pod before, a couple other areas like that where you're taking something that really is designed to do a specific thing, which is infrastructure finance. And because it has finance or it, it deals with money, there's thinking sometimes that it can get into other areas that it may not be especially well-equipped to deal with. So it is, it, you need kind of the right alignment of incentives and politics and the places that, that have them have had them for a long time, it seems like, because that's something that was realized some time ago. And the places that don't may see the value in it, but for the time being, they're going to hold fast and we'll continue to talk about the places that, that are using them really well, like Vermont. Well, we are pleased to welcome to the Public Money Pod Executive Director of the Vermont Bond Bank and a rumored uh, longtime fan of the Public Money Pod, Michael Gaughan. Michael, welcome to uh, welcome to the pod. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you very much. This is one of my top podcasts on Spotify, so it's a real honor to be here. Uh, well, that's that's awesome to hear. We always we always love hearing things like that. Michael, you are, as Justin said, uh, the Executive Director of the Vermont Bond Bank, and bond banks have come up. Many times in my reporting, although not most states don't have them. So maybe you could start off by telling our listeners what exactly is a bond bank and, and what does it do? 
Sure. Well, the Vermont is a great place to start because as far as we know, we were the first bond bank in the country and that came out in the 1969-1970 biennium in the Vermont's General Assembly. Um, a bond bank is an access at its at its essence is an is a mechanism to provide access to capital for units of government. And the bank part is a little bit of a misnomer, but it comes from the banking the bonds or the debt instruments of the municipalities with which the bond bank works. So in the bond bank instance, we do this by um, going out to the big capital markets, um, issuing bonds, tax exempt primarily, taking those proceeds and buying the local bonds from all over the state. And the bonds that we sell are credit enhanced with both the state's moral obligation as well as a state intercept mechanism in which um, if communities don't pay us, then we would intercept debt or payments due to them from the state. And um, we've never done that, but it helps enhance the rating significantly. And uh, most bond banks have some form of credit enhancement associated with their operations. But in our instance, it allows the smallest community, the least credit worthy in some instances, uh, but mostly because they're just small, to access the same cost of capital, which is advantageous as the largest, wealthiest community. So ton of equity embedded in the bond bank and uh, a really fabulous structure that's been exported to about 12 states in some form or another. Do you have a sense of why why more states don't don't have bond banks or or there's do other states have like some kind of a, a proxy to a bond bank only it's not called a bond bank it's called something else? Yeah, two thoughts on that. One is, you know, a big part actually the reason we were formed in the first place was to help facilitate long-term capital for a school construction project. So, uh, although Vermont has struggled with demographics over the last two decades, in the uh, 1960s, um, you know, there was a, a lot of school construction that was going on, a uh, different banking system in which you didn't have, you know, you mostly had state chartered banks um, who des- didn't necessarily have the capital to do long term financing uh, for the schools, but they were happy to provide short term fa- financing. So there was a little bit of a crunch. And so that was the impetus for the bond bank. And actually, on an inflation-adjusted basis, our first issue was our largest uh, in our history for school construction. But, you know, embedded in that is a state intercept that helped uh, provide credit equality for all the school districts in the state. And many other states also have state intercept mechanisms, as you know, to um, help provide market access and lower cost capital for school districts. So in some instances, you know, they're, they're sort of helping out schools, which was the driver of the bond bank by other means. Um, and then in other instances, um, you know, folks like sometimes like the autonomy of accessing the market themselves. Certainly there's more deal flow for the bankers if there's individual um, communities that are going to market. And um, where we've seen them have the most success is primarily in rural states uh, that you know, don't have big deal volume, really benefit from the economies of scale that a bond bank offers. And um, and then no surprise, uh, New Hampshire and Maine also have really robust uh, bond banks, as do places like Alaska and Indiana as well. Maybe you talk a little bit more about that economy of scale component, which it seems like it's such an important part of what bond banks do. What what's a, what's a typically sized you know transaction that you are rolling up when when you're banking uh, when you're banking these bonds, and then what? Um, just to give you know listeners a sense of the the sort of broadening of the base of investors you know that happens as a, as a result of of going from a small deal to an intermediate or or a larger deal. Yeah, I think it's really interesting the service that bond banks provide. So um, 
our typical uh, new money transaction uh, over the six years that I've been here has been somewhere between, let's just say, 15 and 40 million. Uh, we're actually going to blow that out of the water with an upcoming transaction that's been authorized at $70 million. Wow. Um, and we can talk about the way in which what we observe at a small scale, we also observe nationally as well. But um, in terms of uh, how we're providing economies of scale, yeah, as you know, when you access the market with larger block sizes, larger bond deals, you get more liquidity. Despite our size, you know, given our sort of our average new money transaction is about 30 million, we probably still face liquidity premiums versus really large issuers because, you know, we aren't index eligible with $100 million. And so I think that's a challenge and even speaks more so to the need for bond banks because, you know, while we're facing liquidity challenges at 30 million, an individual municipality that's going to market with 3 million or 8 million, you know, they obviously benefit from the from the bank qualified provisions, but they're still facing significant market uh, uh, liquidity premiums. And so um, even more so, I think the the need for bond banks to help out. And then, you know, across our multiple borrowers within the pool, we're spreading out issuance costs. So those are kind of the economics of it. But there's also an economies of scale um, that's more uh, more institutional and knowledge base, which is that we're in the market uh, twice or even three times a year. You know, I've worked as a public finance banker previous to this job, so debt capital markets are something I understand uh, pretty well. Um, understand all the nuances of the municipal market with original issue premiums, arbitrage yield, use of proceeds, you name it. And so all of those knowledge-based um, understandings of the market are brought to bear for our borrowers to, to their advantage. And that includes looking for refunding savings. Um, so we're constantly moni monitoring the market. And if we see opportunities to provide savings to our borrowers, we refund those bonds and then pass along the, the savings uh, to our borrowers. And they don't really have to lift a finger. You mentioned your, your origins in schools. Can you give us just at a high level uh, kind of a rough breakdown of the of the purpose of the proceeds for the the kinds of deals that you're doing today. Yeah, um, so our our upcoming pool is a good example. We've got uh, in our larger communities some economic development projects that are really interesting. Kind of a suburban town center, uh, and that included in that is um, leverage dollars for a federal grant that will mm -hmm. provide a pedestrian pathway from the University of Vermont across the highway over to where this um, uh, town, new town center is. Um, and that's really interesting, I think speaks to the, the ways in which a bond bank can help leverage federal resources um, very efficiently. So that's, you know, that, that looks and smells much like a regular urban development project. But then we also have small projects. Um, as most folks know, Vermont had some significant flooding this past summer. And included in our pool for this year will be, uh, or for this winter, I should say, will be uh, about a $450,000 loan to help repair and restore uh, a critical dam that literally people had tarps over during the flooding to try and hold oh it in gosh. place and prevent it from, from collapsing. So really runs the gamut from um, things that would look like any other muni deal to things that are very specific. The other thing I should say is there's always a fire truck or two in there. Not this round, but um, that's that's a very common use of proceeds as well. They have a pretty long, useful life. So, Michael, you've touched on, um, especially in this this upcoming sale that you talked about, there's some policy themes that are shared by a lot of municipalities. Climate, obviously, dealing with climate change is one of them. Are bond banks, can, can they be used as, as a vehicle for multiple municipalities to tackle some of these large, these, some of these shared issues in a, in a more cohesive way? 
Yeah, I, I certainly think so. You'll probably hear me speak about uh, or advocate for bond banks. I'm a, I'm a huge fan because uh, I think they really meet this moment. And a perfect example is a, a deal we financed at the end of, or last summer. It was a, it's the town of Charlotte, which is just south of, of Burlington, uh, still in the same county, but very rural in character, about 5,000 people. Um, their town garage had burned down. They built a new garage that the heating and cooling systems was a ground source heat pump. Um, and then fast forward to the beginning of this year, and we used we launched a new um, climate finance program um, that will be capitalized by a, num- a number of different sources, but used that program to finance the solar installation on the roof of that garage. Mm-hmm. So you have a net, and that will probably be the first municipal project in the state to take advantage of the new elective pay program coming out of the IRA. So we're hoping to spread that knowledge base, you know, learn from that process, learn from our thinking about how best to structure that and similarly uh, roll it out to other school districts and municipalities around the state. You know, when it comes to climate specifically, uh, there's some really interesting ways in which a bond bank can be helpful. I mentioned before, we have a lot of equity inherent in the way that we provide loans because of the state credit enhancement. It's kind of an equalizer. So our most climate impacted community out of this summer's flooding can receive the same rate to rebuild as can you know a community that was left untouched. Mm-hmm. And I think as we think about now being sort of the time when the climate resilience investments need to be made, that's 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 really meaningful because now is the time to make progress, take advantage of um, the fact that there aren't significant market penalties, and get ahead of the curve uh, on climate resilience. And so. And then just from an investor perspective, we're diversified. So you don't just have exposure to the capital region, Montpelier, Barrie, where a lot of the flooding was concentrated, but you also have Burlington, which was un- which was not impacted by the summer's flooding. Um, and so you've got ge- geographic diversification uh, as well as um, sort of sector diversification, if you will, between municipalities and school districts, and then uh, all the diversification of the economy itself within Vermont. So, uh, you know, a lot of positive attributes in the way in which a bond bank can efficiently access the market. And then in terms of bond banks looking forward, um, you know, I can't help but give a plug for them as, it, as uh, I know the, the reach of this podcast is, is very extensive, but they really meet the moment for a lot of reasons. Uh, the GFOA and others have discussed workforce shortages at the finance director level. And as we sort of spoke about before, you know, it's not uncommon to have someone come from the corporate world into a municipal position. And it's one thing to do budgets and HR and that type of thing. But it's another thing to be to get up to speed on uh, original issue premiums, 5% coupons, arbitrage yield, call dates, etc. And so we take that off the table. We're really plug and play for um, for the communities that, that need debt financing. They can manage their capital plan and then they come to us and it's a very, very streamlined process to get that debt capital from the capital plan. On top of that, uh, under our resolution, you have to be above 15% of the total portfolio by the time you need to provide disclosure to Emma. So the only real disclosure, and our largest borrower is a, is a little over 7%. So the only disclosure that's on Emma is that of the bond banks, and we can manage that. Hmm. You know, if FDTA comes down the line, we're going to be able to figure that out much more easily than can uh, a community of 1,200 people um, that, access, you know, that accesses capital once every 10 years. Um, and so there's sophistication on, you know, all the all the ins and outs of compliance in the municipal market. 
And then we spoke about the climate part of it. And um, and I also spoke about equity. And then as far as leveraging federal programs, we already have a structure by which we can think about helping access uh you know, the things that are rolling out from IIJ and IRA. So Bond Bank, we have our pooled loan program, which I've sort of spoke about the most, which goes out and, and issues debt in the tax debt markets. But we also are the financial administrator of the state's clean water and drinking water program. That's not a leverage program, but um, certainly gives us a lot of familiarity with how federal capitalization works on uh, infrastructure programs. And now we're, we're taking a very hard look at the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund um, that is in progress right now. And and you know can be very helpful in lining up pipeline and play and have some thoughts about how the municipal participants can can work through that source of funding as well. Really relying on our own our prior capital markets expertise through our traditional programs. And so I think for all those reasons, bond banks are really a great policy solution. So you mentioned Michael the federal money. We've talked at length on this podcast about the IRA, the IAJA, et cetera. It sounds like as a bond bank operating at the scale that you're operating at, you're able to make good use of a lot of those dollars. Is there anything that that would be helpful nonetheless uh, to come out, say, from, at the federal or, or state level, given the emphasis that you have on, on climate and particularly in, in rural communities? That's something we hear all about. And clearly the IRA was intended to, to do that to a degree. And yet we hear that it's maybe not having the reach in some corners that it might. Is there some other program, some extensions, some adaptation of the federal dollars that that are out there that might be able to go even further than what you're doing? Yeah, I mean, the big issue in Vermont, as it is for a lot of communities, are uh, a backlog of school construction needs. And um, we've done a lot of work on that. I was on a school construction task force along that was co-chaired by the Secretary of Education and the state treasurer. And that through that process, uh, the it was identified that that on average, the buildings were 61 years old, and that uh, I think the average level of depletion was about 70%. So sort of your depreciation rate. But at the same time, we have 7.6 million square feet of schools in Vermont that are heated with uh, heating oil. And so when we look at the landscape of post-COVID programs, what was left out really was programs for school construction. And I think that was in Build Back Better, but didn't make the final versions of anything. And so our thinking has been, how do we, again, with that, with that knowledge that we, you know, our largest deal on an inflation-adjusted basis was our very first one exclusively for schools, which are now at the end of their useful life. And so our thinking and our work has been, how do we use the programs that do exist to lower the cost of construction for to upgrade our school facilities statewide, knowing that there are tremendous opportunities for energy upgrades um, that are consistent with the goals of the IRA programs. And so that's been a lot of our work is just kind of shoehorning that in. Um, we're exploring other types of programs that are interesting, I think uh, maybe are not capitalized to the extent they're going to be really meaningful. One that comes to mind is the Safeguarding Tomorrow Revolving Loan Fund. Uh, our friends at Virginia Resource Authority, who is also a bond bank, have been successful in, in setting up that program. Um, but, you know, the capitalization grants have been around five, six million dollars for resiliency work. Um, and that's not that's just not a lot of money to revolve. I think they're able to leverage theirs with some some state funding. Um, so on climate, I think uh, the, the hazard mitigation grants that come out after uh, disasters occur are really helpful. 
and they're grant funded and they get people to do the work. And we saw a lot of success stories in Vermont with installations of, you know, million dollar box culverts that uh, towns that have been heavily impacted uh, during our last 500 year flood that was only 12 years ago, you know, uh, survived well this time. You know, ideally there'd be more of those types of programs, but that's, uh, you know, that's for the policymakers. We're, we're, we're finance people and our goal is going to be how do we efficiently and effectively leverage the sources of funds that are out there and lower the cost of capital for our communities in Vermont? On on that that total cost, I mean, I know I, inflation is calming these days, but uh, it's it's affected construction costs and as as well as interest rates. Um, do you have a sense of how it's affected uh, the the muni bond market as as uh, in your assurances? Yeah, this is really interesting. So I mentioned before that. Our, what we observe in our portfolio, when we talk, go out and talk to the rating agencies, they typically observe the same things. Hmm. So um, annually, we do monitoring of our portfolio. We produce portfolio medians that gives us a, a picture of you know, the health of the portfolio over time. And what we've seen over the last couple of years with the ARPA dollars is that uh, general fund balances are up, leverage is down. Um, and those are consistent trends across the industry. And at the same time, or as I spoke about, leverage is down. And we've seen we've had um, lower volume of new money projects over the post-COVID period than we have in a long time. And our on an inflation-adjusted basis, our portfolio is actually smaller than it was 10 years ago after the Great Recession. And so uh, we believe that's finally turning a corner. Folks have sort of gotten their handle, got a handle on construction costs did the community engagement they needed to do to figure out how to spend the ARPA dollars and now and feel safe in that their bids are are real. Um, because you know what oftentimes happen is they're they're figuring out how much something costs, going to voters, and then getting the final design. Um, and, and during that period, things can slip away. And we've seen that. But right now, um, we think that uh, our next two deals, uh, this winter deal that I mentioned is our largest new money deal since I've been in here. And then this summer, we we expect likely will be large as well. And so I think nationally, if if the trend holds, we'll, we'll probably start seeing a lot of new money projects. Um, you know, part of that is obviously inflation, the size of them. But another thing I think is just communities finally deciding that they need to move forward with something that's been in the planning stages for a while. Earlier, you mentioned the the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund, which is now just kind of coming coming online um, in the context of, of leveraging federal programs. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you're doing in that area? Yeah. So if we're successful in receiving a loan from uh, specifically the NCIF, which is a $14 billion program within the $27 billion greenhouse gas reduction fund, that'll actually be our second energy related program that, that we would launch um, or source of capitalization. And our first is um, we're currently working through a loan agreement with USDA Rural Utility Service um, through the Rural Energy Savings Program. And we have a $40 million commitment from them to for them to provide us a $40 million loan at 0% that we, we will then relend at the lowest rate we can for energy efficiency projects around the state. Everything from fuel, fuel switching uh, to solar can be an, an eligible use of funds. And so I think both of those programs are an example of having a finance authority or a bond bank or something of the like that can you know, spend the time and resources to figure out the federal programs and make them digestible and, and, uh, and package them in a way that meets the needs of the local community. So we've been fortunate at the bond bank and that the state took the leadership. So I think federally you could see um, a tactical infrastructure policy 
for the future revolving around bond banks that can leverage a small amount of dollars and make it go a long way, which given that the fact that an IIGA round two is probably, you know, 30 years away because we've been talking about infrastructure for a long time. So it'd be a very tactical way to further the infrastructure uh, needs of the country. Michael, you mentioned uh, separately managed accounts earlier. And just as a, as a follow-up on that, that's another theme that's come up on this podcast regularly. Really interesting change afoot in the muni market or change that's really already taken hold in the muni market. Are there opportunities there for a bond bank uh, uniquely given your focus on climate, your focus on rural communities? I mean, are those themes that SMA investors might be interested in a way that uh, you're not going to maybe get the same traction with traditional mutual funds or other retail kinds of products? Yes, I think so. I mean, I think it helps to get SMA interest if you live in what is a relatively high tax state. (laughs) So that obviously helps um, uh, quite a bit. And um, the other thing structurally that helps us is for the most part, our underlying borrowers um, have level principal payments, so declining debt service over time which pushes a lot of the principal um, kind of in, say, 13 years or less, although we do have final maturities that are that are longer than that. So it sets up nicely for retail um, in a way uh, so that you don't have to go you know, terribly long um, in terms of investing in our bonds. But regarding the, the impact disclosure, I think it does help because I think particularly in a place like Vermont, everyone is very invested. I mean, there's only 640,000 people here. And uh, just about every single deal that we do, somebody has some sort of connection to around the state. And so I think on the SMA side, I think that does help. I think, um, you know, knowing what the deals are, is it in your community? Um, And we've we've used that. uh, We've tried to use that to our advantage as kind of a marketing push. Frankly, Uh, we have a very high quality investment. It's double A plus S&P, double A two Moody's and. Uh, at the same time, it's a it's a good investment, and you can help lower the cost of capital for your community or Vermont in general, which is just one big community. So I, I do, you know, we haven't had the the kind of um, analysis uh, with in, with individual SMAs after the fact, but certainly uh, that's something we hear from um, those uh, broker dealers that we work with. Just to go back to something you said a second ago, just out of curiosity, so you said that a lot of your underlying borrowers are equal principal as opposed to maybe level debt service. Is that a is there a, a reason for that? Yeah, um, part of it's statutory. A bond needs to be level principal payments, um, and that is how the state works as well. There are authorizations that municipalities can use to do level uh, debt service. We think we'll see more of that over time, particularly as we move into more energy efficiency type projects where most of the savings come come further down the line, not not up front. Um, but it's uh, a little bit of a policy of practice as far as um, the way those are structured. Wow, that's interesting. That's really Although I suppose that keeps issuers out of trouble, too, under the right circumstances. It does. And, you know, there's it's been interesting for me. I've been in Vermont six years. I went to college here, uh, but I am from Ohio originally. And there's definitely a sentiment around debt that is unique to New England, I think. And there that paying off of the debt sooner rather than later is very attractive to people. Mm-hmm. Um, we see folks request amortizations that are probably shorter than they could do, given the useful life of the asset. 
And I think there's just a real aversion to debt, which does sometimes get us in trouble. If you look at our our financial ratios on, you know, on one hand, you say, well, you know, folks are, are very uh, responsible. Um, they are, you know, they, they haven't leveraged themselves up. Uh, but on the other hand, um, there's clearly some underinvestment uh, that goes alongside that as well. And so that's a little bit where we are as a country, uh, you know, just outside of New England is kind of catching up with some of that, uh, maybe not in the high growth areas in the in the Southwest, but but certainly in New England. Michael, you mentioned a couple of times about uh, disclosure, and I wanted to circle back to that because that that to me um, and just unpack it a little bit, because I know that that's uh, especially for smaller municipalities that are less resourced, just regular disclosure in for their bonds can be can be difficult. But you also mentioned the FDTA, the federal data, no, not federal financial data transparency act. And that is that is something that's, I think, of concern to a lot of municipalities that you mentioned environmental disclosures. Uh, related to some of the to some of the bonds for climate projects. So, how how does how do you all handle that? Um, and I guess what can you t- tell us a little bit more about how that kind of frees up those frees up um, less resourced municipalities to be able to to do the things they they want to do. Yeah, I, I mean, on disclosure generally, I think I have kind of a unique perspective in that. I think, well, I think we're at a moment right now uh, in a line I've used previously is um, ESG is dead, long live ESG. And what, <laughs> what I mean by that is this sort of impact era of ESG, I think, is kind of fading away. And the risk era of ESG is now very prominent. And maybe it's just where I sit, having gone through the second 500-year flood in, in the last 12 years. Um, but I But I don't think it's unique to here. I think it's all over. And so um, with that in mind, uh, you know, that's where we've focused our disclosure and spent a lot of time on, on climate disclosure. And we're spending a lot of our time and work to help both. You know, it's one thing to disclose it. It's another thing to also do something about it. And so one thing we've been very fortunate to launch recently after the floods in partnership with the state and the state's treasurer's office is what we call our municipal climate recovery fund. And that is a, a short term, uh, well, medium term liquidity program as communities primarily seek FEMA reimbursement, but also give them some structured finance in the event that FEMA reimbursement does not occur because maybe the project doesn't fit in the right box um, and gives them some runway to amortize that over up to seven years or, or refinance it in some way so that they can go about the work of recovering from the flood, doing the work that needs to be done without having to constantly worry about rolling over that, what we call current expense note. It's kind of an emergency borrowing annually. And that at a, fair, at a fairly high rate because of the way the, you know, the yield curve is in, inverted and, and where the Fed stands right now. So that's the way we're approaching, you know, resiliency and recovery. More generally on ESG in the market, uh, the bond bank did do a green bond historically. It's probably not something I would do again, because again, I feel like we can have really great impact disclosure that the funds that care about that can look at our disclosure, see if there's something in there that fits for them. Um, But we don't bear compliance risk in terms of updating our disclosure or subscribing to a certain type of disclosure with a a label uh, for which we don't see much of a yield benefit, if any at all. Michael, you mentioned a bit ago your your background in in banking and public finance banking before coming to this job. How did you find your way into uh, into public service in this particularly unique corner of public service? 
Yeah, I never wanted to work in finance is the short story. Um, that was for people that wanted to go work on Wall Street. And uh, I was nothing like them as a good liberal arts student. Um, but I found my way to both political science and geography, got pretty interested in city planning. And then after college, took a job that was uh, uh, with a redevelopment corporation doing town gown uh, type redevelopment with the, next to the University of Cincinnati. And the, um, uh, the funny thing was the first phase of that redevelopment was a student housing project that was financed on a tax sim basis. It was a variable rate demand bond uh, with, a, with a swap and um, a letter of credit provider. And uh, all of a sudden finance started to become pretty interesting. And uh, as you could see, sort of the tangible impacts of, of public finance. And then still couldn't shake the habit. So actually I have a master's in city planning, um, <laughs> but, but decided to go work in banking with a freshly minted uh, city planning degree for, uh, for PNC and, and had just a, a great time there learning and moving up through the analyst ranks to, to banker and, and just saw the impact that public finance could have. I was covering housing in that particular instance as when I finally you know, made it to banker and, and saw the ways in which low cost capital could effectuate affordable housing, which obviously is even more important now than it was uh, at the time I was there. And so uh, you know, the, the nexus for me was really the way in which the built environment and public finance are, are intricately connected. And so by lowering the cost of capital, we can improve the built environment. We can improve, you know, every aspect of the way we live our lives. Um, and so, with that, I, Justin, for your students, would um, if they're listening, you know, well, your students don't, don't actually need any help. I realize uh, it's not the right audience, but <laughs> for those liberal arts majors that are out there, uh, take a look at public finance. It's really great. It's highly impactful. And um, you know, given the generational shifts we're about to happen that are about to occur, there's probably lots of opportunities. Well, thanks so much to Michael Gaughan, Executive Director of the Vermont Bond Bank. We really appreciate you giving us some time and sharing all your insights here on the Public Money Pod. Thank you very much. It's a tremendous honor to be here, and thanks so much for having me. Well, thanks again to Michael. That was a, a really interesting and informative conversation. Um, I hope hopefully our listeners got a lot out of that. I certainly did. He We talked a bit about... Uh, water infrastructure. And I wanted to reference a report that had come out uh, somewhat recently by the American Business Water Coalition. They issued a, a news release on Yahoo Finance earlier this month. And uh, the report, it's a it's like a, a fact sheet. It's um, They issued the report after there was a series of extreme weather events in mid to late January in a number of places across the state, you know, free, basically freezing temperatures, that sort of thing, flooding. And so the report is titled 10 Extreme Water, Water Disasters in 10 Days, and it uh, shut down local economies across the nation. And it's a business impact fact sheet. So I'll, I'll highlight a couple of them, but basically this is like all water main breaks wreaking havoc. Mm. One in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, a water main break there affected about 600,000 people as, as well as in, uh, residents and businesses. They were placed under a boil water advisory for about five days. Uh, that's a long time. Uh, Philadelphia several suffered several large water main breaks following freezing temperatures. Again, that affected a lot of people, a lot of businesses. That was street flooding and water shutoffs for a couple of days in January. 
a lar- the largest community in Jefferson Parish, Louisiana, placed uh, 250 residents in all businesses under a boil water advisory for a day or so following another following a massive water main break. And this is an 80-year-old water main. Uh, it, it affected every kind of business you can think of, grocery stores, hospitals, schools. So uh, one thing the report adds to that I thought was also interesting, particularly for for the public money pod is that currently federal funding accounts for only 5% of the of nationwide investment in water infrastructure. Probably most of our listeners have a sense of that statistic, even if they don't know it outright. But, you know, speaking to the average person on the street, I think that would be my sense is that would be a big surprise to people is that the federal funding only accounts for a little sliver, a nickel out of every dollar that is spent on on water infrastructure. Uh, the report adds that the needs to cover, to basically get up to speed, will cost at least $1 trillion over the next 25 years. Uh, and quite honestly, that number seems a bit low. I wouldn't be surprised if it were higher. So again, just this kind of underscores both the fact that, well, infrastructure is old and it needs to be updated, that weather, uh, more extreme weather is kind of exacerbating these problems and, and highlighting this, and that this is something that communities across the country are dealing with. And so we kind of get, it touches on that, that notion of a water main break in uh, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, isn't just something that Philadelphia, Pennsylvania has to deal with in a random, isolated incident. Is these, these are things that happen everywhere all the time when when stuff happens with weather, and we have old pipes. I remember back when I was at, at governing, interviewing the then head of DC Water, George Hawkins, and um, him talking about how they were when they were digging up streets to replace pipes, they were not only finding the old like ceramic, you know, pipes still still in the ground, but it was stamped with, I forget the, all the initials, but the last name was Montgomery, who was a, a general in the Civil War, who had been like one of DC's first, you know, head of public works. So these are some old pipes. Um, but while that, that's probably not an, an unusual example either for major cities across the country. So just all that to say is, uh, to me, this report kind of really highlighted how much work there is to do. Uh, what were some of your takeaways, Justin? Yeah, it's a, it's a great piece. I'm really glad we had a chance to talk about it. I appreciate you finding it. It's, and indeed, when you talk to folks who have been working in public works in some of these areas that have had public works for a couple hundred years now. You hear these sorts of stories, talking to friends in New England, it's not uncommon to find wooden pipes and wooden pipes that in some ways are are almost like petrified wood in a sense, almost like stone. It's amazing that they still work and, and just raises questions about what would it mean to replace them and just how costly that would be. The thing that really stood out to me for this was, you know, there's this kind of simmering debate about whether unfunded infrastructure maintenance should be considered a liability alongside pensions and OPEB Mm. and other kinds of long-term liabilities. And there's a big debate and there's certainly good reasons to do that and good reasons not to do that. But one of the animating questions surrounding all of that is, is that really a material risk, right? If, If you as, say, an investor had a better idea of the extent of unfunded infrastructure maintenance, would you, or would you, would that change the way you think about whether you would want to invest in say a city's bonds? Does it change the the mix of information that an investor would consider? And some say yes, and some say no. When you see these kinds of figures and these kinds of anecdotes that are, are laid out in this report, it certainly does press the case that these are material risks, that it's not just that the infrastructure is unfunded. It does bring to life what happens 
when un, when infrastructure that has not been properly maintenanced goes sideways and you have these kinds of massive economic impacts to say nothing for having to then repair and even rebuild on short notice on the fly in a very expensive kind of way. So if you are a proponent of treating unfunded infrastructure maintenance as a liability, this is the article for you because it definitely <clears throat> brings to life a lot of the concerns that many on, on that, in that camp have been saying for some time now. Thanks again to our season two sponsors, Build America Mutual, MuniPro, Odyssey Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy, where we are proudly produced by Hannah Burnick. You can learn more about the center and its work at munifinance.uchicago.edu. That's munifinance.uchicago.edu. You can learn more about Liz Farmer's work at her substack, Long Story Short. That's Long Story Short. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time on the Public Money Pod.